Hi everybody, you're listening to The Rope Podcast with Box and Maya. Thanks for supporting the show. This is a show with adult content, so if you are not of legal age where you live, then turn off now. Rope bondage is a risky activity, and you shouldn't attempt it without first getting proper training. Listen to episode zero if you haven't already. Fox is a rigger, and Maya is a bottom. We are long-term rope partners who live in Bangkok, Thailand. We love to share our passion for rope with the wider community. This episode is made possible by our patrons who support us each month. If you would like to help, head to ropepodcast.com to see many options. This year, we want to focus on bringing the Rope Podcast to a wider audience. To achieve that, we would like to ask you to follow us on Instagram and reshare this episode in your Instagram stories. We are Rope Podcast on Instagram. Another thing that helps us is if you give us a star rating on Apple Podcasts. It's anonymous, so you won't have your name visible on the internet connected with a kinky podcast, don't worry. And now, going on with the show. JP the Pope has been practicing bondage professionally since 2004. He is a bondage rigger, but also a director and performer. The Pope recently has been added to the AVN Hall of Fame, making him the first bondage director and performer ever recognized in that capacity. Hopefully, this paves the way for future bondage and fetish performers and directors to be more accepted and recognized by mainstream media. Hey JP, welcome on the Rope Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So to get us started today, can you tell us how you discovered rope bondage in the first place? Um, so my journey started off as a younger man <laughs> and I, uh, I, I found out at, a, at an early age with, when sexual activity started moving through my brain that I was into things, other things that didn't seem as normal. Um, and I wasn't sure what it was. And fast forward to legal age of working and consent and sexuality. Um, I Well, actually, that's beyond that. It was actually, I was late 20s before I actually found out what BDSM actually was. And I, for the longest time, kind of almost shamed myself because I thought, you know, I, I would tell the select group of people like what I was into um and they were like, oh, and I was like, but then afterwards they would be okay and we would go get like a beer. Like I didn't really want to do these really horrible things. Um, and that, that I also kind of always knew that I was into that kind of stuff, but I didn't know that it was safe. I kind of, like I said, I self-shamed because, well, everyone else likes to shame people for doing things that aren't normal. Um, but it was, um, I didn't start really getting into rope. I was into bondage and by bondage, I mean like, oh, there's an extension cord. And back in the day to age myself, there's a phone cord. Let's pull the thing out of the wall. So whatever was laying around to restrain is what I liked. And then I uh, started dating a model in my uh, 30s, around 30 or so, maybe my late 20s. And she was a bondage model and she... Uh, went out to do some work for a little company called Cybernet, who is now kink.com. And they offered a thing on their site. They offered work for different producers so they could kind of promote the local producers. And I ended up meeting another producer out of San Francisco and through several events, him and I ended up working together and he flew me out to San Francisco to start working with him. And I was just a photographer doing my thing. And then one day, 
he was doing something and that didn't work out and he had to redo a tie and he was trying to think. And I was like, what if you did this? And he was like, do you know how to do it? I was like, no. And he's like, then be quiet. And it wasn't, it wasn't mean or ugly about it, but he was kind of like, you know, I'm thinking go over there. If you can't show me what you're talking about, just walk away. And that was enough to make my brain go. I want to, I want to like, I want to learn how to do this because I had been untying his stuff. And I realized that it was definitely bondage heavy that would make my brain happy. So I went and got a book. It was a, it was a book by Midori actually. And I started reading through it and kind of doing the things. And I honestly, I started practicing tying myself up. I'd sit in a room, I would have rope. And then I, once I got comfortable with doing the really basic stuff, I started tying the futon that I slept on. So I started trying to do complicated stuff with the futon and then me with the futon. And it just, it, it kind of just blossomed from there. I just, I'm lucky enough to be able to do it as a career for the last 20 years. So I, by proxy, I've had lots and lots of practice since I started, but that's kind of where it started. It started with me being into heavier sadistic stuff. And then the bondage at first didn't seem a big part of it. But then once I got turned onto it and was exposed to it, I was like, oh, this, this is the part I really like. Okay. And for our listeners who might not know, what's the place of rope bondage in your life now? It's uh, it's still it's still as high as it's always been. It still inspires me seeing other people's work, and I see stuff like I crave it. Like I see mine, and not to delude mine or anything, but I'm like I'm I'm not bored with it, but I'm like I already know how to do that, and I so I'm constantly watching and looking at other people's work because at some point your brain is like you know even as whatever art you're practicing, it's this is your bubble that you operate in, but then you see someone go here's a neon pink. Ooh, I never thought about putting neon pink. You know, for instance. So by watching other people, it inspires me to, you know, come up with different shapes or push bodies that are capable, obviously, um, more. So it's very, it's still very much a huge part of my life. I still practice it as, as a career. I still, any chance I get in my personal life, I like to, try, I, I like to play with it. Like I really, really enjoy bondage. Like it still is a very high level for me. If you were to explain to our listeners what style of rope you do, how would you express it? So this is interesting because this is a new development has happened with me in the last maybe even six months. I have always had a very high respect for Shibari artists and like Naka, the godfather, if you will, the number one. And I know I came up when I was learning that, you know, Shibari was the sacred thing that was not sacred makes it sound religious, but you know what I mean? It was a very, it was a very precious thing and you didn't throw the term Shibari around. And the way I was taught was unless you went to Japan and you studied under a Shibari artist, you didn't get to call what you did Shibari. And I've always held that level. And through time I was, and I'd heard the term Western freestyle and I was like, oh, that's kind of got a good ring to it. And it feels very much like I'm not trying to claim something because I haven't been to Japan and I haven't studied it. Hey guys, this is Fox coming in for a short break. We really want to share our love of rope to as many listeners as possible, and for that we need your help. Please go to Instagram and follow our account Rope Podcast, then reshare this episode in your stories. Show your love of rope and help others discover it too. But after almost 20 years of doing this, recently and like i said within the last six months i started because so many people reference me and say oh you're a shibari guy and i'm like no i'm not i'm a bondage guy i'm an american bondage guy and then at some point my brain shifted and i thought to myself i was like you know and by me not claiming shibari is that being disrespectful to what i do because my bondage is very 
shibari without being trained by a shibari master, if that makes sense. So I, I put so much work into how I do. And again, I, as I said earlier, I, I look for inspiration. I have seen several things that Naka has done and I'm just like, oh my God, I want to try and figure out how to do that. So lately I've been kind of playing with the idea. I have it publicly. So this is this would be the first time I've publicly said it out loud. I am starting to kind of lean into the Shibari, but in a very respectful way and knowing my place in this community as, you know, as someone who I've not been to Japan, I've not studied under Shibari masters, but at the same time, feeling that where I am, I'm operating Shibari, at least is it, is, I pronounce Kimbuku, I think. That's the bondage for sex. So I, I that's the thing too, is I'm horrible with the technical names. I'm so bad at that. But so I'm starting to embrace that I do actually, I feel like it's Shibari because of the stuff that I do. But I, I also, I'm very respectful in the sense that I'm like, I think I'll put my toe in the pool, but I'll stand back here to make sure that it's not the wrong place to be. Another difference is in the role that you do professionally versus the role that you do in your personal life. It's kind of almost become one and the same for me because when I do it professionally or in my personal, it's done. Well, so I, again, not knowing or not learning under a Shibari master or learning under someone who was more lifestyle. I learned in a production environment, but studied Midori and studied watching, you know, other Shibari artists. And I kind of was like, I love this style, but I have to figure out a way that I can put a person in this, but then it's sustainable for at least 10 minutes or maybe 15 or 20 minutes. And obviously you pay attention and you're watching, but it's it, there. So there's a little difference to it. So my personal is the same way, but then there are those moments where I have like this heavy rope bottom that comes in personal or professional. And we can then play with more of like the legit real shibari where, look, I'm going to put this above the hip bone, which is going to put the prey, which I know is dangerous, but you put it so it it's with intent. So time for sustainability, which is how I kind of learned melding the shibari style to the production. But then understanding that there is this, I can make this very severe, and this can be the part that actually does the torturing without me having to do anything except put rope where it, you know, where it belongs. The sustainability and has always started where my brain is, but then I'm like, ooh, but you're tough and you like to push hard, so let's see what we can do and how far. And I do. I've had scenes where I put a, a bottom in rope and I tell them, I don't need this to be the 20-minute scene that we usually do. If I can get five minutes out of you, great. If I get two, that's also great. I mean, we go into it knowing that this is the intent is for it to be severe and that it's not sustainable. It's kind of both of those play a big part, like the sustainability, depending on if it's, hey, I just want you restrained because we're going to do fun stuff, or if it's like, I'm going to do this just for the, the torture part of it. And sustainability can be relevant even if you're not shooting a video or doing photos, but just if you want to have sex with your partner and you want your sex to last more than three minutes, right? Right. Are there any techniques you can share with our listeners to explain how you make your bondage more sustainable when you need a person to be able to stay in your rope for 20, 30 minutes at a time? I my One of my rules of thumb on set is I always, I, I joke that you pull the rope tight enough to like, uh, and when they grunt and then ease off a little. So the, the, that's the tightness where you, when you pull it, they're like, oh shit, now I'm in it. And then I relax it just a little, but just enough to let them. So this is, oh God, I can take this for so many seconds or minutes, but this, you know, with the, that little bit of relief, I can stay in this for an additional amount of time. But it's learning like 
there's some ties I can do that people can sit in forever. And there's other ties, you know, that you put people in and they're like, no matter how much effort you put into sustainability, they're not going to maintain it. You know, you do like a single point suspension. It's, it's depending on the human. They're not going to be up there long, but the more rope, the more wraps kind of thing. And then also doing it in more of a let's restrain you versus trying to compact you and, and with intent to torture. So the, the main thing is pulling this tight that I feel it should be and then relaxing it just a little bit. Like if I pull up into a strapato, I pull them until I can, you can feel the muscle tension get really tight in the arm and the shoulder. And then I just release it. I just give it just enough. It's, I call it breathing room, just enough so they're not strained and they can focus more on the activity. That makes so much sense. Uh, JP, a bit of a personal question. I have reviewed a lot of your material for King.com, purely for research purposes, clearly. <laughs> purely, for science. I've noticed that in none of the clips you are having intercourse with the models. Is there a reason for that? So when I started, when I was offered the job to leave the South and go out to California, I went out just as a photographer. I was an aspiring photographer who just happened to have this kinky little dark secret. And this was right up my alley. So I was like, this is beautiful. I get to watch this guy throwing rope and I get to watch this thing that I now am finding out is okay and it's not a, a bad thing. And then one day I kind of got thrown into the mix of all of it. I was like, hey, you should go in there and start doing this. So when I did start going on camera, it literally was because my boss flew in a model from like across the country and it was an expensive flight, but then he got sick and he was like, you have to do this. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not doing this. A lot of people laugh at this, but I'm actually a very shy person. So like when you put me in a big group of people or tell me to do something, I don't know, pull my dick out. I'm like, uh, right here in front of everybody. So I was super shy and hesitant. And I was also aware even early in my career that once you do it and you put it on the internet, there's no take backs, like it's there. So it just started off as a conscious decision. And also, well, actually at the time when I started doing it, it was still illegal in America to have full intercourse with bondage. So we weren't doing that. So it was still the male dom to where you would come up and you would, oh, you're such a pretty girl. And you would do a little clap tap on the, you know, the mound of the vagina. If you would have told me when I first started in, in 2004 that I would be using the profanity that I use and beating people with the aggression that I am and doing the torture, I'd have been like, there's no way because we just didn't do that then. And I think it was around 2006, there was a big court case that happened inside of the adult industry and when the ruling happened it was in a positive way for us it was an indecency thing or something like that and as soon as it happened and we and me and my boss have been talking about why aren't we doing this and he's like because i'm not going to federal prison but as soon as this court case happened him and i both were like we've got to start doing this and then within like a month kink.com launched sex and submission and then about the same time we did there was another person who used to work at kink named chanta rose who also launched fucked and bound so there were three of us. There was Sex and Submission, Fucked and Bound, and then we had Fucking Dungeon, all within about two or three months of each other. And until recently, I never even thought about it. But my wife was like, you realize that you were one of three people that pioneered this sex and bondage thing. And I was like, I guess I did. So that's part of it for the first couple of years. I just never, it wasn't even an option. And then when it became an option, the shy boy in me was like, what if someone thinks it's too small or what if someone like I what if it's inadequate what if I don't do like these porn guys like well, all of these horrible intrusive thoughts got in my head and I was like I could do just fine with my pants on and it's just never gotten past that it's it's crossed my mind a couple of times but I also feel like human with a penis that sometimes the blood goes there and the blood leaves here and the brain suddenly doesn't 
operate like it should because it's too focused on the small head. And to me, that part of it pulls me enough away from my my attentiveness to the bottom that I was concerned. That was a, probably the bigger concern, too, is I didn't want to be so distracted thinking with the little guy that the big guy is not paying attention to something. So and, I, and one of the things I'm super adamant about is being attentive and watching and paying attention. I like to pride myself on if, if I hit and I stop in my head, I think or I'm hopefully positive enough to know that if I had hit you again, it would have been red. So that's pushing you to that edge. And if I'm balls deep, then I'm not thinking the same way because I'm used, I'm thinking about something else. So I just, to me, it just has always been like, you know what? I'm good at it this way. Let's keep it this way. Makes sense. We'd love to know the kind of challenges you faced on the shoots because it's such an interesting environment. Oh, some of the challenges that I face are um, uh, probably one of the crazier or I know I probably the more common one. And it's not super common, but from beginning to even now with social media is having people show up and they have no experience. So there's several different ones, but the, the big one is people showing up and they have been spanked and they played with furry cuffs or something. And they come in and they're like, I'm ready for this. And then when things start, they're like, no, wait a minute. I didn't know you were seriously going to do that. And I was like, have you seen anything I've ever done? Like I, and, and it's hard because I don't want to come across as an asshole, but I'm like, I, there's nothing anywhere on social media or anything that's ever made me seem like I was faking it. Like I can't fake these. Like, I don't know what kind of special effects artist you think I have that makes these purple marks show up on them when I hit them in front of. So that's a challenge that's happened and it doesn't happen often, but it does happen. And then, so it's this figuring out a way to navigate that because contrary to the internet, I'm actually a really nice person. I try to be a really nice person and pay attention and be attentive. Like I said, so I don't want to be like, oh, you dumbass, you signed up for the wrong. Like, I don't play. I try and be like, how can I approach this human and politely say, I think you're in over your head. So that's a hard one to navigate um, because sometimes that or sometimes people it's the industry. But sometimes people, they they, they got to pay rent just like the rest of us. And the rent didn't get paid and they're, they were irresponsible. And that shoot has to happen whether they like it or not. And those are probably the harder ones. And it, that, again, that's happened maybe three or four times out of 20 years. So it's not a big thing. But when I see it and it kills me because I'm like, I, I don't want to be the reason you don't pay your rent. But then I have to remind myself, I'm not. I'm the reason you're not getting this paycheck. Because I'll send them home. Because if you're in there just to get a paycheck and you're just putting up with it, that's really gross to me. And I, I don't, it's it's not consensual. And that's where it really bugs me because everything that I do is so hyper based around consent. And you're doing it for a check, which means you're putting up with it, which means you don't really like it, but you're going to just let it happen. That's, that's, it's really gross to me. So those are, that's probably the bigger ones is having to navigate situations where people are in over their head or they're doing it for the wrong reasons and having to gently let them down or to actually have to dismiss them and say, I'm sorry, I can't do this. And I, and I know that sucks and I know you need the money, but I don't want to take up negative space in someone's brain ever. Like if I do horrible things and you love me for it, great. I'll sit there all day and take that space. But if I've done something and unintentionally took up negative space in your brain, even for an hour, it makes, I don't like it. It's, I don't, I don't like that at all. Hey dear listeners, our conversation with JP was really fascinating and we didn't want you to miss any of it. And so we will have the second half of our interview with JP the Pope in the next episode. Thanks for listening and have fun tying. <laughs>